Turn to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. Verses 1 through 5. In the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, and he owned seven and 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the east. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified early in the morning, and he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. Okay, the story begins in the, in the land of Uz. So we have to figure out where Uz was. In chapter, in verse 3, it says that it was east. And so the question is, east of what? Well, where did the people of Israel live? In Israel. And the point of that is that Job did not belong to Israel. The, you could put the setting in a long ago time in a faraway place, and the reason for that is that the problems of this book are the problems of the entire human race. It's not the story of Israel. It's the story of everybody. And in the beginning, everything is the way we think it ought to be. Job is a, this righteous, pious, good guy, and he's living the good life. He's so cautious that he even offers sacrifice for his children, just in case maybe they sinned, just in case God is easily offended. And then God gives him this wonderful life. And this is key. The amount of blessing he experiences is directly proportionate to the amount of obedience he offers. Perfect relationship between blessing and obedience. And we'll come back to this idea because trouble is coming to us. Us is a place where very bad things happen to a very good man. Us is a place where suffering comes. Not just where suffering comes, but it comes without warning and it comes without explanation and leaves a, a wake of chaos and confusion and suffering. And the truth is, everybody in this room will spend some time in us. Some of you have, some of you are right now. Now in verse 6, there's like this radical shift in scenery. Now it's important and very helpful to picture the book of Job as if it were a play. But there's two stages with action going on at two different levels. There's a lower stage and there's an upper stage. The lower stage is where Job is, where Uz is. The upper stage is where heaven is, where, where God is. Now this is crucial to the story. Now we, those of us who are reading, we know what's going on in both settings. The writer intends for this to happen. Job does not know what's going on on the upper stage. Job only sees what's going on on the lower stage, which is crucial to the story. Verse 6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like, on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands, so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. 
But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. So Satan goes out, Job loses livestock, wealth, servants, children, everything. And we wait to see how he will respond. Verse 20. At this Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with, wrongdoing, with wrongdoing. Job grieves, he worships, he speaks words of, of blessing and praise. And in all of this, Job did not sin. And this all happens on the lower stage. Then in chapter 2, the story switches back to the upper stage in chapter 2, verse, verse 3. It says, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied, A man will give all he has for his own life. But stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he is in your hands but you must spare his life. Okay, from this point on, action in the story is going to switch back down to the lower stage. So we need to talk for just a second about what's going on in the upper stage in heaven because it seems very strange when you first read through this. A lot of people think the key question in Job is, is where is God when we hurt? Where is God when we suffer? And that is a huge question. It is not the fundamental question that is, at, that is at stake in the book of Job. The key question on the upper stage, the key question really for the structure of the entire book comes in chapter 1, verse 9, when Satan says, does Job fear God for nothing? Here's what's going on. Here's what's at stake. Satan is saying, God, Job is devoted to you and worships you, but the reason he does is because it's in his best interest. Of course he's going to. It's quid pro quo. Quo. You scratch his back, he scratches your back. Satan is charging God with, with being naive. You think Job loves you? Job doesn't love you. The truth is Job loves you the way children love the ice cream salesman. Job loves you the way that Imelda Marcos loves the shoe salesman. God, you turn off the faucet of blessing and you watch how fast Job will turn off the faucet of devotion. And here's what's really being expressed. This is the core issue underneath it all, that the whole idea of a covenant of self-giving love is just a farce. The truth is, everybody's just looking out for number one. Dog eat dog, survival of the fittest. That's what's at the core of this odd, strange fact of existence. This odd universe in which we find ourselves. And therefore, the suffering of individual creatures is just meaningless. And God says no. This view voiced in this story by Satan is cynical, warped, misguided, and wrong. That at the core of the universe, and therefore at the core of your life, is self-giving, self-sacrificial, even suffering love. And therefore, hope makes sense. 
Because this self-sacrificing God is bigger than our suffering. That's what's at stake in this story. Now we read chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. Job gets hit with a second wave of suffering, and this time there are some subtle differences in his response. This, this time he does not fall on the ground and worship. This time he does not say, may the name of the Lord be praised. This time he goes and sits at the town dump. And his wife says to him, Job, curse God and die. Now this could not have been encouraging to Job. (laughs) This is not Anthony Robbins' voice coming to him here. But he says to her, shall we accept good and not trouble? He's struggling to understand God now. Is God the kind of person who sends trouble? Is God the kind of person who sends evil? Is God really good? He's struggling. Now notice a phrase that comes at the end of verse 10. In all of this, Job did not sin in what he said. Remember after, after the first wave of suffering? Um, it just says, in all of this, Job did not sin. But now there's this little qualification. Job did not sin in what he said. In his heart, he's struggling. Now in verse 11, still on the lower stage, we're told that his friends gather, um, you know, they hear about his troubles, and they decide to speak to Job. Now his friends gather, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, Zophar the Namathite, Dadgum the Termite. They all, they all come to Job. Job. I just made that last one up, but it sounded kind of Hebrew. They set out from their homes to go sympathize with him. They're going to go sympathize with him. The Hebrew verb for, the, for, for sympathize, that's a very physical verb. It referred to body movement, shaking back and forth, nodding the head. You see this sometimes when a person goes uh, into a horrible trauma and they're in shock and they just shake like a mother will rock her baby infant, you know, to comfort. They'll just rock back and forth. It's very visceral. It goes way deep. Their love is so great. Their love is so intense for Job that they plan to sit with him and take on his anguish. Verse 12. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. I mean, they'd heard it was bad, but nothing prepared them for this. I mean, Job is in a desperate condition, and they just weep. And then they sit on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Now you think about this. Sitting with someone in silence for a minute... For an hour, not a word, for a whole afternoon, for a whole day, day and night, for seven consecutive days and nights. That that was such a powerful act that it became a part of the people of God, a a part uh, of the life of the people of God. And to this day in Jewish tradition, they will speak of sitting Shiva literally sitting seven, where friends will come and sit with one who mourns for over a week. And it struck me the things, um, and it struck me that this is perhaps the greatest example in Scripture of what Paul says when he writes to the Christians in Rome, mourn with those who mourn. 
And it struck me the things that Paul does not say that we often try to do. Did you notice that Paul does not say give really good advice to people who mourn? He doesn't say fix people who mourn. He does not say tell people who mourn to snap out of it and get with the program. He says go mourn with those who mourn because there is something about the very act of self-giving, self-sacrificial love that is redemptive because it is at the core of reality. Mourn with those who mourn, and then God is at work in ways that we do not understand, that go way deeper than words. Now, it's interesting that after seven days, Job's friends will speak a lot, and they get into trouble for it. For good reason, their words were not so hot, but their silence was brilliant. Their silence was a gift. And just maybe, just maybe, one of the reasons why Job was able to to struggle and persevere with God is that he had a few friends who sat with him in silence for seven days and seven nights. No answers, no advice, just them. Well, they do that for seven days, and you picture the drama of all this and this silence. And then Job finally speaks. And if he can just repeat what he said in chapter 1 and chapter 2, God gives, God takes away, may the name of the Lord be praised, then uh, he he would pass the test and it would be a short book. Chapter 3, verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Um, uh, Okay, this is the kind of thing that keeps him off the motivational speaker circuit, you know. And then it gets worse. He said, may the day of my birth perish. Um, In the night it was said, a boy is born. That day may it turn to darkness. May God not care about it. May no light shine upon it. May those who curse days curse that day. I did not know there was like an occupation of day cursing, but apparently there was. May its morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain and not see the first rays of dawn. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Okay. Um, and then, and then um, for the next 28 chapters, Job pours out this level of anger and bitterness and confusion and sorrow that, that, towards God that is staggering. And it is so staggering that his three friends, who are quite pious towards God, they can't stand it. And they start arguing with Job. And they all express this fundamental idea. They do it over and over again. That was taken from the Mesopotamian literature of the day. It was a genre of literature that is similar to our self-help literature that you can find in almost any bookstore in America. And here's the central idea from the Mesopotamian wisdom literature. Whatever you're experiencing is what you have called upon yourself by how you live. So if you're prospering, it is because you've done good stuff. And, if, and, if, and on the other hand, if you're suffering, it is because you've done bad stuff. And you have angered the gods, whoever they might be. And this idea spread in Israel and outside of Israel. And by the way, it's still around today. And by the way, it's still around in Christian circles. And Job can't stand it when they say this, and they do it over and over again. And if you read through the the book of Job, you'll notice by the middle, it gets really boring. I mean, there's this long stretch where where you say, okay, get on with it, I get it. Well, that's a very 
Uh, that's quite deliberate on, on the part of the writer. It's a very deliberate strategy. He wants, us to hit, he wants to hit us over the head with this idea that is expressed within the conventional wisdom of its day that, Job, you must have done something wrong. Because if you hadn't, then how would you explain your suffering? And Job's response, if you read through um, the book carefully, Job does not claim to be perfect. What he does say is, you know, my life used to be great. Now my life stinks. I'm still the same guy. So whatever is going on, it's got to be something deeper. It's got to be something more complex. It's got to be something more mysterious than I used to be a good guy, and that's why my life was good. And now my life stinks, and so I've done terrible things. It's not that. Whatever is going on, it's not that. Okay, that's the whole big middle section of the book. Just that argument over and over again because the writer wants us to know how mind-numbingly crushing that idea is that wherever you are in life, you've brought it upon yourself by how you live to the human condition. Job questions God. He tries to cling to God. He accuses God. Job, in chapter 23, says, I wish that I could take God to court. I wish that God would show up and I would take him on man to man. And then in verse, uh, chapter 38, verse 1, Job gets his wish. And the text says, Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. I mean, can you imagine what that moment was like? Chapter 38. Who is it that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across, across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for, for joy. Now what you notice when you read through this is that when God shows up, he doesn't get around to answering God or Job's question of why. Specifically, he does not tell Job what the writer told us about this scene in chapter 1 and chapter 2 about the upper stage. He doesn't say anything about this. He just asks Job a bunch of questions that he can't answer. And I wondered, why does God do this? Because it looks kind of mean. You know, kind of like, I'm big and you're small, too bad for you. Now part of what's going on is that God is pointing out that Job has a finite mind and a limited point of view which we all do and cannot have an eternal perspective. That's part of it. But there's something more going on, and this is what's so cool. God's questions are indicating something about the kind of person he is. And this is really the hinge that the whole story, Job's understanding of the character of God, turns on. You have to follow the trajectory of God's questions towards the end of Job. Chapter 38, uh, verse 25 says, Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm to water, to water a land where no man lives, a desert with no one in it, to satisfy a desolate wasteland? Who does that? Now here's what would jump out in Job's day. In Israel, life depended on rainfall. They were a dry, thirsty land. They would never waste water. So why would God water a land where no one lives? Because there is something about this God. Because this God is good sometimes for no reason at all. He is a God of gratuitous goodness. He gives just because he lives to, loves to give. 
He, even when it doesn't appear to be strategic, even when it doesn't appear to be strategic, and all of these questions keep showing this creator who delights in his creation, who serves, who cares for animals, even those that, that have no apparent use at all. They're, no, they're not strategic at all. Chapter 39, it talks about the ostrich. The ostrich is this goofy-looking animal. The writer says she flaps her wings joyfully like she thinks they're going to get her somewhere when they're not. And because she has a limited IQ, when she lays her eggs, she forgets what she does with her babies. But when she runs, the writer says, oh my, the ostrich laughs at horse and rider. I mean, God just endows her with this beauty of speed, delights in this goofy-looking animal. Chapter 40, God says, I made the behemoth, probably referring to the hippo, useless to you. The ancient world considered a chaos monster that should be destroyed, but not God. It says that he ranks first among the works of God. I had my A game going the day I made the behemoth, God says. God goes on to talk about how he delights in the wild ox that will never plow, the wild donkey that will never be tamed, the, the mountain goats who will give birth in the secret places where no man will ever see. I mean, the whole section is God creating and caring for and giving to and delighting in animals that aren't good for anything at all. Why would God love a world like that? Because, Annie Dillard says, because the Creator loves pizzazz. Because the Creator loves pizzazz. Because He's the kind of person who revels in the beauty of His least strategic creature. Because He's just gratuitously good and uncontrollably generous and irrationally loving. And He just gives all over the place for no reason at all. Because it's His nature. Because God loves pizzazz. You see, in all this conversation, Job finds out the kind of person God is, irrationally loving, gratuitously good. Job never does find out about the upper stage. Job never does find out about the conversation that takes place in heaven, but Job finds something better. He finds out who God is. That God is loving beyond Job's wildest imagination. And that's why Job makes this amazing statement, my my ears had heard about you. He says to God after all of this, but now my eyes have seen you and that's enough. Because God comes down from the upper stage to the lower stage so Job can see who God is. And it's kind of a preparation for the day that God would come down in the person of Jesus Christ to the lower stage. God would come under your ash heap and mine. God would take on Job's suffering and your suffering and my suffering and our sin on the cross. And then God would say to everybody on the lower stage, anybody, whatever you're going through, you come to me and you give your suffering to me. I'm a great big God and I will give you hope and I will give you comfort and it matters what you're going through. I know, I see, I will come down, I will redeem. Self-giving Self-sacrificial love is the core of reality. That's the story of this book. And then it ends with this little epilogue. I always thought the epilogue was kind of strange. I didn't understand it for the longest time. It's a fabulous book. Chapter 42. Chapter 42. 
verse 7. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz, the the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Okay, God speaks to the friends. Now to get the drama here, you have to get their amazement. Job has been complaining about God. And they think they have been sticking up for God. They think that they're right. And then God shows up and says to them, nope, Job is right, you guys are wrong. And God says to them, but if Job will pray for you, I will forgive you. Now, I imagine Job and his friends had a very interesting conversation at that point. And the tone was uh, uh, very different than the one that had been going on up until then. And Job prays and God forgives. And then we find out about the end of Job's life. Verse 12. Then the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter was named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hepak. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. Okay. Now, I always thought that this is kind of odd. Because you don't like to replace children when they're gone. I mean, it just seemed kind of weird to me. But there was some, there's some stuff that we would miss that would jump out at the ancient readers about what's really going on in this story. The first thing is that, they, the, that they would notice is that the, the writer gives the names of some of Job's children. Whose names does the writer uh, give? Job's sons or Job's daughters? The girls, the daughters, not the sons, the daughters. In Hebrew genealogies, that's unheard of. That's unprecedented. And, unprecedented, never happens, and doesn't just give the names. They're strange names. Now, in ancient literature, true to the Old Testament, true uh, of ancient literature, names are very significant. They're a big part of the story. People delighted in names. And generally, Hebrew names were very serious. Almost always, they either express great uh, theological truth or great character virtues or hopes for great character virtues that parents had for their children. But these three names of Job's daughters are all about beauty. They all appear to be extravagant. Um, um, Jemima was the Hebrew word for a dove, a bird of a particular uh, color that they really enjoyed. Uh, The second daughter is Keziah, which was their word for cinnamon, a prized spice. And Anybody ever here walk into a store called Cinnabon? And when you walk in there, you know there's a god. <laughs> well, that's the aroma. You know, little Cinnabon. You know, so that's the second daughter. The third daughter, Karen Hepuck, is the strangest name of all. It meant horn of eyeshadow. I mean, he named this kid after makeup. That's like naming your daughter Estee Lauder or Maybelline. Okay, not only does the text give their names, not only are they all weird names, but then he gives them an inheritance to the daughters. Now, again, we wouldn't tend to notice that, but the readers in the ancient world would. In an ancient, a male-dominated world, a father with seven sons would never dream of leaving anything to a daughter. Because what a father gave to his son was going to take care of him in his old age. Giving to your sons was like investing in a 401k. Um, That was strategic. That made sense. You never give to the daughter the daughters, because that money is going to their father-in-law. That money's going someplace else. That money's gone. Sons were strategic. Daughters were not. Why does the writer include this odd stuff? 
Because he wants us to know that now, that now Job delights in and gives to the least strategic of creatures in the eyes of the ancient world. Now Job is being gratuitously good and uncontrollably generous and irrationally loving and he's just giving for no reason at all. Does that remind you of anybody? It is the story of the victory, of the triumph, of the redemption of the self-giving, self-sacrificial love of God who loves pizzazz. It is the promise that Satan was dead wrong about old Job. The central question in this book is, can a man, can a woman hold on to God in faith, in life, in love, when it does not seem to pay off at all? And one could and one did. Job could not see the upper stage. Job did not know that his faithfulness had meaning beyond his wildest dreams. Job did not know that, his, um, that something cosmic and eternal was at stake in his little life, in his little time, on this stage, in his deep suffering, sitting on an ash heap, scraping boils from his, his skin with broken, discarded pots, broke, sick, mocked, Confused, abandoned, helpless, hopeless, alone. Job's faithfulness and suffering were being used by God to vindicate God's whole wild adventure of covenant love. Job's honesty and perseverance have been used now for thousands of years across the continents, across the cultures, across the language to inspire billions of people who live in the land of us. Hang on, Job. Keep going. Don't give up. Don't let go. And the writer wants wants us to say that not just to Job, but to say it to ourselves, to say it to each other, to say it to the people all around us who suffer, who anguish, who agonize, who hurt, who question, who don't know, who don't understand, to say to them, don't you give up. Hang on. You persevere. Your little life, your little suffering matters more than you can imagine. You are a part of something cosmic and eternal that you cannot even dream about. We live in the land of us. Everybody will suffer. Some in this room are suffering right now. Deep, deep hurt. Why? I don't know why. How long will it last? I don't know how long. Does your response matter more than you can possibly imagine? More than you can even dream. So don't let go. Don't give up. Hang on.